Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Mom, I got the job in Manhattan. Do you have a warm enough winter coat? What about your car? I'm selling it with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. How? I enter my license plate number, miles, condition, upload photos, and boom, an official cash offer from a local dealership. A cash offer instantly? Oh, did you call Aunt Stella? She's right there in Massachusetts. Mom, I literally just got the job. Not everything is as simple as selling your car with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it, kbb.com it. We're big fans of Karyuma. They make cool, eco-friendly shoes that we basically wear 24-7. We're excited to be releasing our second collaboration with them, Karyuma and Love It or Leave It. There's just something about the fall that makes you want to get new shoes. So why not get ones made with organic cotton canvas, natural rubber, cork, and recycled plastics? It doesn't hurt that they have tiny surfing dogs on them. They come in pink and black and feature a whimsical scene that'll absolutely put some pep in your step. Plus, Karyuma plants two trees in the Brazilian rainforest for every pair purchased. Run, don't walk, but not until you get a pair of shoes at cricket.com slash store. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Positive the People. It's me, Kaya, DR, and Miles talking about all the news that wasn't talked about as much as it should have been in the past week, especially with regard to race and justice. And I learned some new stuff today that I didn't know. So hope you will too. Then I sit down and talk to comedian and activist Amanda Seals to talk about her new independent documentary entitled In Amanda We Trust. And Amanda was amazing. So here we go. Let's jump into it. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram at Diara Ballinger. I am Miles E. Johnson. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Threads, TikTok, at Feral Rapture. I'm Kaya Henderson. You can find me at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And this is DeRay at D-R-A-Y on Twitter. Well, friends, um, my news this week is coming out of the great state of North Carolina, where Republican legislators who hold a supermajority in the state legislature released two redistricting proposals this past week. Um, Currently, the state's congressional delegation is split evenly, seven Republicans and seven Democrats, which actually reflects the political divide of North Carolina voters. Seems like that's the way it should be, right? However, under the new proposal, three House Democrats and maybe a fourth would be put in an almost impossible to win situation because of the way they are gerrymandering these maps. Um, The North Carolina Democratic Party condemned the proposals, of course, and the chair of the party, Anderson Clayton, said, diluting our voices, specifically the voices of people of color, to entrench power is a manipulation of our democracy. And while you might think to yourself, well, the governor could just veto the maps, Um, the Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, does not have veto power over redistricting legislation in North Carolina. So what would happen if these maps are accepted? Um, The Republicans could win 11 of the 14 congressional districts in North Carolina. 
Um, and, you know, we've been in lots of conversations. We had the conversation about the Alabama redistricting a few weeks ago where the Supreme Court threw out their maps. They came back with another whack map and the court threw it out again. Um, and here we are, friends in North Carolina who have not learned the lesson and are literally Xing out, you know, mostly black people's votes in North Carolina. The only thing that might mitigate this when it comes to the national election is Democrats in New York. Democrats in New York, pay attention. You could actually save us from this. The Dems in New York State have the power to do the redistricting maps in New York. And the way they draw their maps might cancel out any sort of national advantage that the Republicans have based on what's happening in North Carolina. Okay, so how did this happen? Um, in 2022, the midterms provided wins for the North Carolina Republican Party that, first of all, gave them greater authority over the redistricting process, and it allowed them to flip the North Carolina Supreme Court. People think midterms don't matter. Midterms matter significantly because when they got control of the court, the new GOP uh, majority in the court threw out a ruling by the previous Democratic leading court which was a ruling against partisan gerrymandering. So the Democratic court said, you can't gerrymander. The midterms happen, Republicans win. The Republican court says, out with that, you can gerrymander. And that ruling created the maps that, the, the first ruling created the maps that reflect the state's currently evenly divided congressional delegation. But this new map will give Republicans 11 out of 14 seats in Congress. Um, and that will tip the majority in um, even more in the Republicans' favor in this next presidential election. Um, and so, or could, if New York doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Um, and so I brought this to the podcast because I feel like there is a lot going on in the world. Um, of course, you know, Israel and Palestine, of course, um, and all the things that are happening right now. And under our noses, hardworking Republicans continue to encroach upon our democratic and ideals um, by disenfranchising voters. And if we don't pay attention, um, we wake up and realize that North Carolina, which was a pretty purple state, has now gone completely and totally red because of um, people's voting or not voting in midterm elections. So I brought this here because I think um, there are so many things, you know, racism seeks to distract. And there are so many other things that we are um, looking at that we're not focusing on um, things that are happening now. So to my friends in North Carolina, pay attention to what your GOP legislators are doing. To my friends in New York, pay attention to what your Democrat are doing with their redistricting maps because we might need you to save the republic. I am just beyond exhausted with us having to save ourselves from our own government. <laughs> it's like there's so many things going on in the world. There's so many things going on in this nation that are urgent. And then every now and again, aka every 24 hours, we have to make sure that the leak from the of the Titanic is not coming from the inside. Like we're like it's like we have to worry about the icebergs that are um, outside of us, and then also these just selfish, narcissistic, evil people <laughs> who want to drill holes in the boat today. And it's in in inside inside the Titanic, and it's like 
I think the um the exhaustion of it is like hitting me, the intellectual exhaustion of it. And I think that's probably the goal, right? To feel for make people feel exhausted, make them feel like there's not once you cover up one uh leaky hole, there's another one to cover up. And I love that you bring this to the podcast because it, it fills me up with some type of uh will <laughs> to, to to continue to fight. But Jesus, you all like <laughs> it's 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 always another thing. It's always another thing. What this took me to, I don't know, I've I've been very much in a, a space of being connected to our ancestors. Um, and so it took me to what what was going on in North Carolina in terms of black people and political engagement. So during Reconstruction, so from 1868 to 1900, there were 111 Black men, albeit, in the North Carolina legislature. The latest I can find in terms of numbers as of February 2023 was 26 Black folks. Now, from 1900 to 1968, which were our Jim Crow years, zero Black folks. So for 68 years in North Carolina's history, there was not one Black person in that legislature. And so it brings us to today. And I, you know, I think it's these, I think I've, I've thought of what's happening today and what happened years ago, like definitely a through line, but I think in just like how I was yeah. seeing them, it was sort of disconnected. But I think stepping into the feet of our ancestors, it's like what happened between 1900 and 1968 can happen today in 2023. And it looks like that is what's happening so, you know, I think I think that's the the fascinating part to me is that we're you know we're going to continue to be in this struggle, but like how are we going to orient ourselves in this struggle, and how are we going to partner work with our people so that we don't get back to zero black folks in the North Carolina legislature and beyond because they're coming. They're coming well, this for This reminds us. me. They're coming. They're coming for us. DR, I didn't know any of those numbers about the reconstruction era. Kaya, thank you for bringing this because hadn't heard about it at all. And Miles, I think you're right. You're like, who is there fights on every front? It feels like what this reminded me of is, is that they cannot win without cheating. Right. That is the, like, right. That is Come just on. Right. You better preach. Right. You better preach. Come on. That, oh. like, There's a word. We There's play a word. by the rules, they yep. will lose. That's just a game. That's what's true. Uh. And the question for us in the organizing world becomes, how do we help people realize that they are cheating? Like, this is not, mm-hmm. you know, they are cheating. This mm-hmm. is, they are cheating, you know? But they can't win if you play by the rules. And as all of you know, the more people that vote, the more likely the Dems are going to win. Not even because people have some deep, what annoys me about this conversation is that people think that Black people or the left have some deep affiliation with the party. They don't. People mm-hmm. hate the Democratic Party on the left. We just know that the alternative is literally trying to kill us. Mm. So, like, when people sit up and make a choice, they are like, do I get the people that I'm, like, shaky town about 
or do I get the people who are like, you aren't people? And you're like, well, that's not a hard choice. That is actually a pretty easy choice. And when I think about this situation that you described to us in North Carolina, it is a reminder again that like they know that people will make that calculus when they have to. Mm-hmm. And they are rigging the game so that even when you choose, even when you vote, even when you do all the things, it is impossible for your vote to matter. And, you know, yeah, uh, you know, we got to I don't even want to say we got to play the game like them. We got to make the game that's fair. It. That's the mm-hmm. that's the goal. The game mm-hmm. has to be fair. Mm. Ooh, I needed that word this morning, honey. That was, Thank that you, was Brother so DeRay. So mine is about Brandon Johnson, the mayor of Chicago. And I just wanted to bring this here because there was this conversation happening online about his recent moves. And it made me think about what is our relationship to elected officials that we like? What is our relationship to elected officials that we work really hard to get in office? What is our relationship to elected officials that we identify with and that speak to our lives and our struggles? And... Somebody said it better than me, but this idea that you don't have to consider them your adversary, but they are definitely your opponent. And I think that is true. So when you think about Brandon Johnson, uh, Brandon, when he campaigned, he said that he was going to get rid of ShotSpotter, which is a technology that purports to detect gunshots. And um, he didn't. So the first news that came out about ShotSpotter is when the contract got renewed in Chicago. Again, he said this as a declarative statement when he ran. When he's, so all of a sudden the, sh- the contract gets paid and, and then his response is it essentially was on auto pay from the last administration and the city of Chicago just automatically paid the new contract for ShotSpotter. And everybody was like, well, that feels really, you know, like auto pay feels like a weird way to justify that one, but okay, boom. And then he appoints this guy to like run public safety. This guy will not say He's against ShotSpotter. Mind you, Brandon ran. This is one of the claims that he made when he ran. He just approved the police union contract that gave essentially more money to the police than even Lori Lightfoot did. And he increased the police department budget. These are all essentially things that he said he was not going to do when he ran. Now, the question becomes, what do we do, again, when our friends, when people we like, people we identify run? And my reminder in this is that these people, even when we like them, have a job to do. And that we really do ourselves a disservice when we, like if we, the way I think about it is like, if we can't tell the truth to our friends, then we are really down bad. And if we can't hold our friends accountable, then we are the, we are down super bad. And I've seen people struggle to be critical of Brandon's decisions, Mayor Johnson's decisions, because he was a teacher and the teachers union and da 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 And it's like, buddy, you make us a bad decisions and we got to call them out. And that doesn't mean that the alternative guy was better. He was crazy. But Mayor Johnson, you got to step it up. But I think about this with Biden. I think about there are a host of people who like, we like them. They do good things and they make decisions that don't make sense. And we have to name them every time as well. This is curious to me because if I remember the Chicago election between um, Johnson and Paul Vallis was the opponent. Vallis was heavy on the like more money for police, tough on crime, da 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 da. And Johnson, you know, positioned himself as the opposite of that, right? Um, of being reasonable. He spoke out against Shot Spotter, it's racist, it's blah, 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 and whatnot. And he gave 
more than $10 million more to ShotSpotter than the previous administration. Like his signature, it was not auto pay. The article that I read, I'll put it in the thing, says that his signature approved giving $10 million more to ShotSpotter. Um, And so there's a question of, are you not paying attention to what's happening? Do you not do you not believe what you used to believe? Like what is going, you know, I think there is also a question around um, sort of what union loyalties, you know, how they play into this, because as we know, labor, you know, often supports other labor organizations. And so um, it really is, I mean, I, I appreciate you, DeRay, sort of saying all our all our people might not be our people all the time, basically, is is what you're saying. And I appreciate you providing some nuance and saying we're not saying, you know, anti-Brandon Johnson, but we are saying we have to call out, you know, fragoragon nonsense when we see fragoragon nonsense. And this is incoherent. This is misaligned. And mostly this is harmful to the Black community that... Brandon Johnson, you know, represents um, or at least claims to represent. So um, this is interesting and it'll be this is going to make me pay more attention to the sort of policy decisions coming out of the Johnson administration in Chicago to see if he's walking the talk or if he perpetrated a fraud. I'm just going back into the articles, just Dre, about this the shot spotter payment, because that is I think that's a curious thing for me, too, where it's. Like we mistaken, we unwittingly signed something that the previous mayor, da 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 da, and I'm just like, in in addition to being held accountable by activists, do y'all need some help with some interns or something in there? Just also, yeah, you're hiring, <laughs> right? It's like, can somebody check auto pay? Do we need to have DR on assignment to check the auto pay Listen, bills? Listen, but Chicago? I do. You know, I my compassion comes in because these are huge cities with huge bureaucracies, um, and it is it, it it is sort of an impossible task to make sure that you are on top of every single thing at every single moment. But it's also democracy, so it is. If you do misstep. That's when folks are like, uh, remember you said you was going to do X, Y, and Z? So I think it's, to me, it's, it's, it's just, it is a reflection of things working. And I think, Dre, when you bring up the Biden administration, you know, they are acting on the, acting for the communities they hear from most. And I think that's most elected officials. And so I think we, we have to do an even greater job of, of ringing the alarm and being as vocal as possible. Because if we just think if we were, had not been watching this, it would have, it would have gone on and no one would have known the, you know, been the wiser. So this one was really, really interesting. And now I'm more curious about Brandon Johnson. Um, I hadn't really been paying attention to Brandon Johnson, uh, Brandon Johnson in Chicago at all, given that I live in New York with mayor Adams, It's, it's hard to pay attention to all these other mayors when we got what we got going on here. I am in Houston at the moment, and I can't wait to see the faces on this screen when I remind everyone that Sheila Jackson Lee is running for mayor of Houston. I'm going to leave that there. Say what now? <laughs> and the party just endorsed her. Uh, Jeffrey oh, just, just came out and wait. supported her. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah. I think I have, like, a more general thing to say. Um... 
and it's been cooking in my brain and it's still a little gooey. So if it's not coming out quite right, you know, blame it, blame it on my mind, not my heart. But it, it just, I think we, we've expired the time, uh, the time of pretending that these officials are doing things perfectly is expired. I feel like there was like this weird time that Trump, when Trump left and, and even now because everything's happening and Republicans are doing, you know, just evil villain type of stuff. I think that sometimes it impairs our ability to critique and it impairs our um, ability to hold these officials uh, account accountable. And what I'm seeing is this frustration with we can't really say what we want to say about Biden or really can't really critique what we want to say about these officials because we're afraid that that's all we have. But at the end of the day, the whole system is n not awe-inspiring. <laughs> there's things that are wrong. There are things go happening that are wrong. There are, there are, there's incompetence that needs to be called out. We can't be afraid of expecting excellence and that's what sometimes it feels like that we can't expect excellence because then we're going to end up with horrendous and I, I just feel the the frustration with that inside of me and I know I'm feeling it other people are feeling it too and we are going to 2024 it is going to be an election year I am so excited and horrified and I think that is going to be the thing like just taking it to I guess the you know the national like sector like we have like we Biden is 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 not it's not just gonna be you're not the right opponent you know and and yeah again a gooey thought and it's not necessarily cooked all the way but I'm just feeling that frustration around having to be silenced or having to edit yourself just to make sure things keep going along and getting along. Thank y'all for riding that ride with me. <laughs> Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. So first of all, I want to uh, just say that, yes, 
I am coming out on this podcast as, you know, beautiful. <laughs> and beautiful topics are interesting to me. And when it comes to last week's body image and this week anti-aging, because that's what beautiful people think about. And <laughs> this, <laughs> this conversation I really wanted to bring to the podcast, A, because I love throwing things in all these brilliant people's minds to hear their opinions. But the reason why it was interesting to me is because it feels like there's a little bit of a guilt piece that's missing from the article. So let me tell you what the article is about. Days Magazine released this interview with this multimillionaire named Brian Johnson. Brian Johnson is described in the Days article as a vampire millionaire. That means he's doing all types of weird stuff with his son's blood <laughs> to make him be to, to make him seem um alive and 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 in all, all types of details about DNA except in technology that makes basically makes your lifespan um longer. The reason I, I'm always kind of reading articles about how just what's going on culturally and what people are doing and the gaps are so wide that it's fascinating that all this stuff is happening. Some people are living science fiction novels while other people are like living these uh, 16th century, you know, horrors and, and we're on the same planet in the same timeline. That's fa always fascinating to me. But this was really interesting because A, there are other things to worry about and then B, the, the piece around wanting to live forever feels like we're not necessarily getting to the facts that I really feel like these people are afraid to die, but not in the regular existential, in my agnostic, atheistic, do I believe in life after death? Not in that way, but in the way that they're afraid of consequence. They're afraid of, uh, they're, they're, they're afraid of, less of there being oblivion in death, but more they're afraid of there actually being responsibility for what you did in death. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I see these articles, sometimes I see these articles and I see this huge industry around that anxiety. And it's, and all of these practices that they're doing sound just as absurd as the the evil that they're letting, that they're, that they're letting happen. The, 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 the the getting so much money and not thinking to share and <laughs> getting so much money and not thinking to how am I going to let humanity happen? It's no, it's how do I live to 150 years and, and not live the last 50 years in bed? Um, I'm going to read a little piece from the article that I found absolutely fascinating and again, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a long interview. So definitely go, um, Go read it. It's on it's on Dazed. Then there's Brian Johnson. You might know him as the multimillionaire who drained blood from his teenage son in a bid to extend his own life. Since launching his experimental blueprint project a couple of years ago, Johnson has evangelized for a holistic approach to anti-aging at every opportunity. His output, which is which showcases the expensive treatments he tests exclusively on himself, ranges from magazine interviews to glossy YouTube vlogs to dank memes. If we need help um, defining dank means, I got y'all. Then this is a quote from him. Blueprint was a contemplation of what it will mean to be human in the coming decades and centuries. Johnson says, looking back on projects, not so humble beginnings, he points out that we spend a lot of time talking about how to build better technologies, computers, smartphones, virtual reality, or AI, and worrying about their risks. We spend disproportionately less time thinking about the future of us. 
That said, his vision for the future of humanity often means integrating with these emerging technologies. For example, he's developed a specialized algorithm to process all of the data he collects about himself, match it up with relevant science, and turn it into actual anti-Asian treatments. In a nutshell, an algorithm runs me, he says. Initially, when people hear the idea, they think it sounds dystopian. The majority of my time is spent explaining the nuances. So... Again, I think that what this does do is put me in the mind of some of these people. And of course, I, I, I don't want to make it seem like millionaires or billionaires are a, are a, a race group, but I do think there's, there's a commonality <laughs> in how they're thinking. So it's putting me in the minds of what is, is causing anxiety in these groups of people and what they're concentrated on. And to me, this is connected to like the moon conversations, the submarine, the, the all these different things that we're, that they're doing to almost escape the reality. And I think in times like this, specifically with everything happening nationally and globally, I wonder why are we, tr what's the motivation to be here if you're not, putting your money towards having clean air. What's the motivation for you to be here if you're not putting money towards it being a safe place that isn't um, overrun with uh, terrorists and isn't overrun with crime? Like, what what is your purpose to be here? I saw Fran Lebowitz um, in King's Theater a couple of days ago on Saturday, um, and she had this comment that really uh, rang in my ear. She says, uh, uh, millionaires and billionaires often think that the, because they live in different worlds and they're in Aspen, that there's different air, but there's not different air. So everybody should be concerned about environmentalism. Everybody should be concerned about these other, um, these, these kind of global pursuits that the left is offering. And it's articles like this and stories like this that remind me that there is an intellectual logic gap that I don't know how to fill. Like, I don't know how somebody can look at the doomsday clock and hear environmentalists and then think, yeah, I want to put 150 years on my life, but the planet is telling you that you y'all gotta go. We're getting eviction notices in the forms of natural disasters all the time. So <laughs> <laughs> eviction notices, tell it. So I so I'm just super confused. So yeah, I don't have uh, an assessment of it, but I wanted to bring that thought to you all. Like, what do you all think is that gap? I wanted to hear Auntie Kaya's uh, creepy. <laughs> you know, the creepier, the better with Auntie, with Auntie Kaya. I love seeing her reaction to it. So I wanted to hear her thoughts about it, but also just kind of dig into what is happening that's making people be so narcissistic to be so scared, to, to be so uh, obsessed with their own individual life, but not think, but where, if there's not an earth for this life to be on, if this, if, if the other people who I'm inhabiting this long life with, um, hate me, well, like what, what, what in your mind is going to happen? Are you just going to like figure out the cure to life and then move to the moon? Like, is that, is that the plan? I, I, yeah. Like, what, what, what's going on? A uh, uh, millionaire approximate <laughs> friends. <laughs> you know what this makes me want to ask though? It's like, it's like, who, who are your people? Like, where you come from? Well, Dracula, and that's what I'm apparently. saying. That no mention. I've been looked at all kinds of articles about this man. It doesn't talk about who his parents are, what values he got from his parents, who his community truly is beyond. 
the Amazon man and the Tesla guy. I think, you know, and y'all know I'm just coming off my dad passing on September 29th. And one thing that has comforted me about my dad's passing is that my dad lived with purpose. Okay. Every single day, purpose. And I think that's what's missing for these folks, Miles, is that their purpose is so self-centered and so inward that, yeah, they want to extend their lives because they they're like, we ain't done nothing to help nobody while we here. So what is our karmic future in the afterlife? So I don't know. That's what this takes me to. I'm just like they just seem like they are lost, lost, lost out here. So disconnected from whomever their ancestors are, so disconnected from who the community is and its extension of that mother earth. Like I just, and all the pictures of this man online, I, I'm, I'm going to have nightmares. I keep, listen. That's all I got to say. Cause we don't have <laughs> television right now. Auntie Kaya has her um, thumb and her index finger on her chin, looking auntified and 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 confused in a very butter pecan um, way. So first of all, <laughs> oh my gosh! So first of all, like I just, I mean, I read this and I'm like, say what now? And so let me just read this one thing through various treatments involving lasers and light therapy gene therapies countless skincare products a prohibitively precise diet plan intense workouts and a regimen of more than 100 pills per day he's trying to rejuvenate his skin alongside the rest of his body yes all of it all of it y'all to the quality of an 18 year old's he also colors his hair, though he's actively looking for alternatives to rejuvenate the pigment. Like, he's 46, he wants to be 18, and he feels like the future is going to be exciting, and so he wants to stick around to um, be here for it. I mean, the short answer is, child, bye. But uh, you want to engage, and so I will I, I will engage. I, you know, I'm I'm the old lady of the group, right? I just turned 53 and I am embracing being an old lady. I'm no, I'm I'm clear and I'm not. I'm embracing middle age. I'm embracing growing older gracefully. And like, as I look out at, I mean, it's interesting, Miles and Diara, that you sort of asked, who are his people? Who is his community? Who is he surrounded by? Because I do think that Community matters a lot in terms of what mm-hmm. our outlook is about the about aging and the end of life. And like, I, I just think about like, how, I think about my grandmother who, you know, was 89 and lived one of the most joyful lives that I've ever known, especially as she got older. I think about, you know, I, I, I mean, I have lots of elderly men and women in my life who maybe became their most beautiful when they got old, right? And and who were not spending all their time <laughs> trying to hack life, right? Who were embracing life the way it was intended to be. I think about the Black community that surrounds me and how people are prioritizing, you know, farming. I think about my Indigenous friends who are bringing Indigenous earth practices back to the forefront. I'm thinking about how we are, how cooking is changing for us, right? And and at a time where some set of people is trying to out-tech themselves into the future, I think many of us are 
going back to the practices that have withstood the test of time over centuries and generations. And so I do think that ultimately this boils down to who are your people? Because my people tell me that growing mm-hmm. old is beautiful. My, t- my people tell me that there is wisdom in age. My people tell me that gray hair is beautiful. One of my best friends has a full head of gray hair. And honey, you can't go nowhere without men knocking themselves down to get at her. Like, and so I, I do just think that we fundamentally have different um, ideas about the end of life and aging based on who our people are. And this dude need to get him some new people. <laughs> I will also say that somebody needs to check this man's basements because this is also giving me some get out stuff. And what is he not telling us? Because I'm sure he is. I'm sure he's looked at black people and been like, what now? Why do you Kaya look like that at 53? So he might honestly go lock your door, Kaya, right now, please. <laughs> I, look, I also want to know. I also want to know who, what mother is letting her eighteen-year-old son give his blood that to his part. daddy so that he could uh, live yeah. forever? Mm-mm. But this makes me think not to be that guy who's like capitalism is destroying everything. But Lord knows, people don't need excess wealth. You're like, you know, this is what happens when you just got all that money just sitting and around time. and time and done nothing to help nobody and. Can't even, you're not even enjoying it out in the world. When I first read this, I was like, oh, he's 80. He's not even 80. This man, 40-something. You're like, buddy. And also, there's another article that I didn't put in the chat, but there's another billionaire who, the guy who started Lululemon, actually, uh, has a rare disease. And he is single-handedly funding the pharmaceutical industry to create medicine to attack the disease because the pharmaceutical industry is like not enough people get this for there to be medicine. And he is pouring his wealth into funding it. And it just is a reminder that like money is making a lot of decisions that, you know, other things should be making is one. The second is like, and I didn't even think about like, where are your people as a response to this? But that is true. Like, you aren't even like enjoy like part of the beauty of life is that it is finite that you like know you know it's coming you know and the question becomes how do you make it matter in the in the in between and if if capitalism is your goal and you have amassed as much money as can be gotten i get how that would create an anxiety like that is if that is your animating feature in the world I get how when you reach that point, you're like, well, I just want to be a forever, da da da, because there is no purpose, there is no meaning. Like, that was the one thing and you did it. Uh, and that just isn't what a full life looks like. Well, speaking of fascinating white men, my news today is about Hannah Crafts, who is, was a, an enslaved woman who wrote a novel. That was years, I think in 2000, discovered by Henry Louis Gates. And then maybe it was even prior to 2000. Um, and then he, he, he then went out, Henry Louis Gates, and, and published this manuscript. But evidently in the literary community, there's always been pushback like, mm, is this true? Could a slave woman, enslaved woman really have written this? <sighs> So part of this took me back to remember we talked about the portrait of Belazar, so the enslaved young boy that was in the portrait that was covered up, right? And part of that was like, oh, yes, you know, Black people in nice clothes didn't exist in the 
late 1800s. I mean, it just, it blows my mind. Just like the thought, uh, the thought around that Black folks wouldn't have a skill set or proclivity to, you know, write a beautiful novel. Um, But anyway, so this New York Times article, which when I saw the headline, I was like, ooh, fascinating. And, And I actually, I need to go buy Hannah Crafts, buy Henry Louis Gates's the, the the published novel that he put out for Hannah Crafts because I wasn't quite fam- I wasn't that familiar with her I don't know what I was doing in 2002 I think I was in law school when I really wasn't reading any novels um, but anyway this this so the manuscript the, the 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 novel gets published there's all this pushback around can this be true is this truly resourced yada 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 so this guy Greg. I'm going to butcher his last name, Hesimovich. Gray goes on this campaign to really prove, to to prove, because we've got to prove that this Black woman has written this manuscript. So he's done all these years of research and, and, and now has put together kind of this biography of Hannah Crafts, who she was, but not only that, like who her descendants are. What you really don't get from this article is who Hannah Crafts is. But what you get from the article is how grateful we're supposed to be to Greg in his efforts to to legitimize this Black woman. And when you Google Hannah Crafts now, guess whose photo pops up? It's Greg's. (laughs) So I guess my struggle in this is, (laughs) my struggle in this is, listen, the article, to me, I'm like, you know what, you know, it's for, it's for the right audience is doing what it's supposed to be doing. Because like, now I'm like, I got to figure out who Hannah Crafts is so that I can have my own experience with Hannah Crafts in a way that is not seen through the prism of this white man. Right. And you know, clapping my hands that he went out and did this research, but it's still the way, and I remember this with the Balazar portrait, it's the way that the information is presented to us, right? It's like, we're going to cover this story because this story has been legitimized by a white lens. And so therefore it is, it is good enough for us to bring it to you. And when you go into this article and you kind of click on the, the articles back to 2002 when Henry Louis Gates came out, put this, the bondswoman narrative out in the world, all the language around it is still slave woman this and slave woman that. So at least the New York Times has evolved so that now we're at least saying, because the headline of this actually just says America's first Black woman novelist. And to me, that is that is that is progress in that it's not, you know, first novel by a slave woman is found and da-da-da-da. So all that to say, I had lots of feels about this article. You all should read it. I am now going to spend my next couple weeks getting into Hannah Craft so I can figure out for myself who this woman is. And I'm sure I will have a deep appreciation and gratitude for her. It will be a beautiful day when other people, specifically um, resourced white people, um, actually engage with the Black mind and imagination experience as a tool. 
you know, to know that like, oh, actually the work is not done until the black person has engaged with it, until there's been other people doing it. And it's, and it, and it's a tool. It's not just um, what looks good. It's not a vanity idea. It's also a tool that needs to be centered because if not, this these are the kind of uh, storytelling things that happen. And this is the kind of erasure that um, that can take place. But besides that, thank you for bringing <laughs> this person to uh, my I, I just I had no idea you educated me. Um, Auntie Di- Diara. Um, I will say, Diara, that's not exactly how I thought this conversation was going to go. Um, I was, <laughs> I was. first of all, I had never heard of uh, Hannah Crafts. I feel like I've heard of the Bondswoman's narrative, which is the book that she wrote, um, but I haven't, I hadn't read it. And now I'm really, really intrigued and am, am going to pick it up. Um, but this story, I mean... Like one thing that I I will I'll I'll just say in my reading of the thing is it wasn't like Hesimovich set out to legitimize it and in fact he thought she couldn't have written a book and he set out to prove that it, she was not the author of the book right Henry Louis Gates found a manuscript and he was like oh yeah this black lady wrote this novel I'm gonna publish it. And the people were like, nah, the black lady couldn't have written this novel. And so they asked for the papers of her enslaver at Mr. Professor Hesimovich's university. And he jumped in and was going to prove that she didn't write it. And his research then unearthed that, in fact, she did write it. And what was interesting to me about this is it tells a very different story. I mean, the book, I want to read the book because... Apparently, it really tells a first person's account of slavery in ways that we don't usually get to hear. Um, Much of it very, very gruesome in ways that somebody describes like even reasonable people think is too much or something like that. But um, this this Hannah Crafts master or the family that owned her apparently prized literacy amongst their slaves and taught their slaves how to, their enslaved people, how to read and write. And that is not a narrative that we usually get out of, out of slavery times. We get that it was dangerous, that it was, you know, punishable by death to be able to learn and read, learn to read and write. And somehow or another, this particular family thinks it enough of their enslaved people to actually educate them. In fact, um, one of the criticisms as to why it could not have been written by an enslaved person is because it actually pulled on themes from Victorian novels like Dickens. And in Mr. Hesimovich's research, he finds out that next door to the the enslaver's home is some kind of a women's college or something. And they have Bleak House, the Dickens book in the library. And so, and it seems like from her writing, she could have gotten access to the lessons from the students and the thing. And so for me, it's also interesting because it provides an alternative to the regular narrative about um about slavery that uh, and literacy, right? And you know, I'm super interested in education. And I mean, this is a 304 or 305 page novel. Like, so this woman had time on her hands to write. She had 
resources to write. And, you know, he says at some point, I wonder why she didn't publish it. Well, I don't know a whole lot of publishers at that point who were publishing black people anything. (laughs) Um, But I do feel like, you know, the historical universe you know, gave us a little carrot and allows us to jump into this. It also like it just surfaced some new things for me. Um, she lived. She went. She escaped. Hanacraft. And she escaped. was in North Carolina, and by the she, way. So this is like a really interesting through line through our early conversation. Wucha. And she moves to Timbuktu, an all-Black settlement. And I didn't know about Timbuktu, so I got to do a little research on that. So I just found this chock full of interesting information that makes me want to learn more. Um, and it just shows that Black women have been killing the game since the beginning. DR, had never heard of her, this story, your read on this, top tier, 10 out of 10 down notes. The only thing I'll add is I had no clue that this is only one of two known novels by enslaved or formerly enslaved Americans. One Mm -hmm. of two is Mm -hmm. wild. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's wild. Mm -hmm. So that's nuts. Mm -hmm. The second thing is Kaya, both of everybody pointed out that like, you know, as, as, as interesting as the book about Hannah might be, his intention was to discredit her and we should never, ever lose sight of that. The third thing is that when I read the piece about Dickens, I'm like, well, maybe she taught Dickens. You know, like the book came out and that time I'm like, maybe he, he's up here like striking similarities. I'm like, I'm sure he took all them riddles from black people. I'm sure the storytelling with some stuff that the black woman who raised him probably oh, told stories in a way and he wrote it down. That was my assumption from Jump. It was not that she borrowed. It was that he borrowed and he got he got. And by borrowed, I mean stole. He stole a storytelling technique. And I, what makes me annoyed by this is that I was watching a very cute video, actually, of this country star the other day um, on TikTok. And, and I was reminded that Black people made that, too. You know, I'm like, all this stuff is Black people's who made the American project a project. And um, I, was, I was, like, annoyed in my bones don't go anywhere. More Politic the People is coming. Napa! Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shins that eliminate noise for the life of the pad. Rubber-coated hardware for a better fit and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. Your home is your place of peace. It's clean. It's welcoming. And it's definitely not crawling with invading insects if you use Ortho Home Defense Max. Use it indoors on non-porous surfaces to treat and prevent cockroaches, spiders, and ants for up to 12 months. So your home can stay your place of peace, your work-from-home office, and your family's headquarters. Kill bugs inside, keep bugs outside, and love your home. Visit ortho.com for more. 
Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72-month special financing on select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. This week, we welcome comedian, activist, and creative visionary Amanda Seals on the pod to talk about her new political comedy documentary, and Amanda We Trust. The doc follows Amanda in Washington, D.C. on a journey of curiosity to find out if she could or should run for political office. We also got a chance to discuss a host of other things. Amanda is amazing, and I... It was such a good conversation. I learned some stuff about her. I hope we can do some cool things together because she's dope. And she knows a lot about Black history, about the world, about America, has lots of politics. You'll love her. I did. I do. Here we go. The one and only Amanda Seals. Thank you so much for joining us today on Party of the People. Thank you for having me. Well, I love the documentary. I have a lot of questions about some parts of it. But before we start there, can you tell us like your journey, not only to comedy, but to using your voice to talk about these societal issues, which is not what a lot of your peers are doing. And you have done it consistently, whether it is the documentary, whether it's Instagram. I actually just met somebody the other day and he said to me, he was like, do you know she has the show that's live? Da-da-da-da. He's like, I made a seal. Do you know her? And I was like, I'll be talking to her soon. So, um, so yeah, what, what, talk to me about that process. That's always been who I am. It wasn't even a process. Like, honestly, like that's always been... Just uh, the way that I kind of processed my art. Um, I think I I grew I grew up in a Grenadian household household where literally today, as we're recording, this is the I don't like the word anniversary for these types of things, but this was the day that Maurice Bishop was put in front of a firing squad and murdered in Grenada, who was a revolutionary in Grenada. Whether you agree with what he was doing or not, he was a revolutionary. Um, so like I come from a revolutionary people is my point. Uh, and I grew up, you know, just listening to a lot of Bob Marley. And I just feel like, you know, you hear Redemption <laughs> Song enough times, you hear Buffalo Soldier enough times, you hear Get Up, Stand Up enough times, like it becomes a part of your molecular DNA. Um, and so I've just always been somebody who was consciously aware of just injustice. Like I remember when I was like in preschool when I was three the teacher told us we were stupid and I came Mm. home and told my mom like this is an outrage this lady told us we were stupid you know and my mom like came up in that school and was like don't you ever call these children stupid again (laughs) you know so like (laughs) so like that's always been my my mo and as I gained more knowledge and more confidence right and more support in my life, uh, it just became a lot less of a thing that I just naturally did and like a thing that I felt like purposeful in doing. And uh, I purposely went to Columbia. I went to, I mean, I went to grad school for African-American studies with the very clear intention that I'm coming here because I want to speak for and on behalf of and in, you know, in the empowering of my people. And I feel like I need to have like this academic 
background to go along with what I have because I know this country and what it's on. Um, and so that's always been it, you know, to be honest, Ray, like, I don't think I, like, of course there's been projects that I've been a part of that like weren't necessarily about that. You know, like, I don't feel like Insecure yep. was like, um, I mean, Insecure by its nature was definitely like a game changer, but like, it wasn't like we was on there talking about Palestine. Right, 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 right. <laughs> you know, next year will be the 10 years since Ferguson. And it has made me really think about how much we all have learned and grown since the August of 2014. I'm interested in what has that been like for you? You know, you think about your grad school experience and and learning in the classroom and just it feels like the conversation has just shifted so much in 10 years in some ways. And then some ways I'm like, whoo, we are still stuck. But what what has your journey looked like? And I, in terms of what you've learned, I even think about the first time I got challenged for using crazy. I used to be like, that's so crazy. And people like, DeRay, you can't keep calling things crazy like that. And I was like, right. oh, I didn't even, you know, so like ableist language I didn't know about. I think about like the conversation about trans. I've learned so much in ways that I didn't even know I didn't know. So I'd, I'd love to know what that has been like for you. Sometimes I'm with it. Sometimes I'm like, come on, y'all. <laughs> Amanda. But hey, come on, y'all. Just because like there is, I am a comedian, right? So there is something yes. to be said for like, everything doesn't have to be everything. Like everything doesn't have to be couched in like, when we talk about like the PC of it all, when people first started saying that, I was like, I don't understand like how that's difficult for y'all. Because I took it more so like, well, I'm not out here being transphobic in my comedy and I'm not out here being racist or misogynist in my comedy. So like, why would that be difficult for y'all? But then it got into, you know, just like specific words. Like you can't say lame because that means da, da, da. like you can't say someone is tone deaf because that, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think there's something to be said though for this, like, there's like a, a literalness that, that I don't think necessarily serves us in the best way all the time. Um, mm. I think that there's a, there's, there's a, there's ways in which language can be used that have multiple meanings. And, um, I think that there's some things that we find out like are derived from very disingenuous, very like negative places. And then there are some things that are simply just descriptive. Um, for instance, like I learned recently that like the term tone deaf, people were like, that's ableist. Yeah. Um, I think, though, there's something to be said for the fact that, like, to my understanding, the term tone deaf did not come from being derogatory to individuals who are hard of hearing. It it came from combining one word that means one thing and one word that means one thing and bringing them together to mean a new thing. And so I think there's a difference. And I think that sometimes when we don't acknowledge that difference, we get caught up in things that aren't necessarily bringing us forward. I mean, of course, somebody who's deaf might be like, well, you know, fuck you, Amanda. How dare you? Right? Like that, that, that is bringing us backwards, but you asked me. So I'm answering. (laughs) I appreciate the push. Okay. Let's talk about the documentary. You know, I feel like I'm pretty aware and I know people's stories. And then I watched your conversation with Bowman and I was like, didn't know this part of his story. I like just straight up. Didn't I like, I knew he was a teacher. I didn't know Mm -hmm. the part about, um, the students, the, the kids who were self-harming, like didn't know yeah. it. I like listened and I was like, oh, okay. Like Amanda, teach me. Um, can you talk <laughs> about what led you to do the documentary? You, you've obviously done it and you've, you've been telling the truth and telling stories in a host of formats already. Why the documentary? 
I got to tell you, I, I was led. Like, it, like in most things, it's like Amanda's on a mission. I'm going to do this thing. And then I okay. do it. Um, it wasn't that way with this. You know, I really set out, DeRay, to do... Uh, I really set out to do a stand-up special. That was the plan. I was going to do a stand-up special. And when that didn't end up happening because I realized like I didn't have the money to like do the special at the level I wanted to do it. Um, I said, okay, I'm going to take a different route and I'll just use old footage, but then I'll do like some segments that I can put in between the old footage that will like sprite spruce it up. And when we went to shoot the segments, we just got such an abundance of dope footage that we were like, huh? And I kept saying, man, we got such good footage, man. We may not even need to stand up. You know what I'm saying? And I, you know, careful what you say, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> because then we hit a wall where we realized that the previous footage that we had was not the same quality in terms of like the mm. technical aspect of it. And it would have okay. looked like two different films, like, and, and not in like the, not in a good way, not in like an artsy way. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. <laughs> and so then I had to, I had to just make a decision and I spoke to my director this is also the beauty of doing something independent. Like I had to make a decision, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Like yeah. I didn't have to think about it and then think about now, how am I going to ask Massa for, right. you know, uh, Amanda permission. <laughs> um, so I, I was really proud of us because we made like a quick decision. And thankfully we had an editor, shout out to Mark, who was just like, all right, all right, all right, let's do it. And we turned and we pivoted and here came this documentary, which it's so funny how like so how often things just happen by accident. Right. Like I've never seen a format like this before, um, which is why it became even difficult on like how what to call it. And then eventually yeah. we're like, well, this it is a doc. I mean, you're just taking a different route, but it is a doc. And what also led me here just in terms of the segments and deciding to even do these segments before they were compiled in a documentary was the reality that so many people are complaining or frustrated about the state of things, but really don't know how it got here or how to change it. And I think considering what we're watching unfold this week with the genocide in Palestine and the way the American government is responding to it, it heightens even more the necessity to really understand what role do politicians and law politicians as lawmakers, what role do they play in our lives? Because I really feel like we've gotten way too far away. And the further we get away from government, the more it becomes involved in our lives. I will say there's a part at the um, towards the end where you're doing the like person on the street interviews and mm -hmm. one person's like healthcare for all. And the other person's like hmm, free movies, right, right? Free movies. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, whoo, I mean, this is honest. That is, it was like very, I was like, cause she said healthcare for all so confident. I'm like, oh, what she got? And then she was like, you know what? I love part. And then she pivoted to what libraries or something. I was like, girl, parties She's is like, what you like, actually. Right. Pizza parties. <laughs> I was like, oh goodness. Um, now I'm, I'm happy you said that, though, in terms of especially the current crisis that's happening around watching genocide in real in real time. Um, what has it been? What have you learned or what has it been like to to teach people? Like, what have you learned about the way people do think about the government? Or like, is there a question that people have that you're like, oh, I thought I didn't think this is what we we're going to have to spend a lot of time on. But this is the thing or or what is or are people too busy yes. to 
What's the help the me. number one help thing? Us. The number one thing that I've noticed is that people, and I, I want to also say like none of this is coming from an elitist place. I am learning as I'm teaching. Like I am somebody who had disassociated myself from politics because I was so down with Trump. And then, you know, realized like, yeah, you don't get to do that. Especially as a black person in America, you simply just don't get to do that. Like if you, the more you disassociate, trust me, you associated. Um, (laughs) And so I've had to immerse myself and learn. And, you know, I think the thing that was very revelatory for me that seemed oddly obvious, but that I was missing and that I think a lot of us are missing is that, These are not simply politicians. These are law makers. Like when we think politician at this point, I think a lot of us just think people who act like Hollywood in DC. Interesting. Like that's really, I mean, we had a reality star as a president. Like that to me is where I think a lot of people look at it. They look at it. And even if it's not in DC or it's local, it's almost as if people look at like, they look at it like just like a job description versus there being an actual action behind it that directly affects you. And I know that we've, we've said this, we've said this, we've said this, but I think that the fact that we refer to people as politicians disconnects folks from the actual reality that they are signing into law, things that change your life. They, They are the ones with the stroke of the pen that can change it. And when we don't have that connectivity, we become less accountable for ourselves in how we affect who gets that power. Right. We we're we're not even thinking in that way, you know, and it's 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 something that I'm like challenging myself, like stop calling these people politicians, call them lawmakers, call them Mm. lawmakers. Call them lawmakers because like literally your language needs to change in how you refer to these people to help people like get grounded. We are very unknowledgeable as a people in America by nature of just the lack of curriculum around previous and current uh, discriminations and oppressive legislation, et cetera. Like we don't realize how much we don't know. So like, I feel like I am in a constant state of awakening about how this operation runs. And at the bottom line, I think most of us are really not truly connected to the realities of they made these laws and they can take these laws. They made these laws. They can change these laws and they can take these laws. Like the poly and politician is really policy. Is that a t-shirt? You need to make that a t-shirt. You need to make that a, I am, I am ordering the first t-shirts. Put that on a switch. I'm in. One of the things that I've been interested in too in that vein is, you know, we, I'm obviously an organizer day to day and we say everything goes back to race because it really does go back. Like, it's not like a conspiracy theory. You're like, but I've been shocked when people are like, you're being dramatic. And I'm like, I don't know. I think the world was dramatic. You know, I'm like, I think that the truth is actually wild. And I was having this conversation with somebody the other day about like, we gave white people homes, right? Like the Homestead Act, we literally gave white people homes in mass as national policy. Yeah. And they were like, I didn't learn that. They're like, did we? And I'm like, yes, we did that. You we know? did. And you know what? We did learn it, but it was contextualized as benevolence. And it was not contextualized that at the same time we were doing that, we were denying Black people homes. Absolutely. We were denying yes. former slaves homes. So that's how we end up getting this disingenuous schooling is that things are not taught 
within the comprehensive point of view. They're just taught like individual things. Like we're taught, oh, Lois and Clark, men of his destiny. They went across America. And it's like, yeah, but you left out the part where they were also leading the way for there to be massacres of indigenous people in America. Like you left that part. Absolutely. Or reconstruction. I didn't even know reconstruction was a thing until I was an adult. Don't get me started. Don't get me started. Zero. I had never heard of it. Had you heard about it in high school? I didn't even know reconstruction was a period of time. I didn't. My nigga, I just learned about reconstruction two months ago on a Delta flight. Don't get me started. Shut up. Really? Sir. Sir. I have a master's in African-American studies and I did not understand the, co- like reconstruction was a word that I you that yeah. I heard applied to, there was this civil war and now the civil war was over and they had to reconstruct. <laughs> Amanda. They had, that, that's essentially, it wasn't until I was on this Delta flight and I started watching these, these videos, a part of this masterclass series called, I think it's called like Black History, Freedom and Love. And they did this in 2020, but they have it like, it's still on masterclass and it's still on Delta. And it has like these like 10 to 15 minute videos about various topics. They did three seasons. They have people delivering these videos like Nicole Hannah Jones, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, Sherilyn Eiffel, uh, Cornell West. I mean, Angela Davis, like, I mean, they have like an elite group here, right? So I was just like, let me get some, let me get some knowledge real quick on this flight. Let me get some knowledge real quick. Cause none of these movies, I've seen all these movies. So I just was like, oh, let me see this video on reconstruction. What? <laughs> like wow. I sat there in shock and in awe that what I was witnessing was the true, like the holes of my scholarship, like these Mm. gaping wide chasms of my scholarship to the point where then I went and um, started reading this book by Eric Foner uh, about the reconstruction. He's the scholar. He is the reconstruction guy still alive. I I was like, if you going to do it, like do it. So so I started reading the second founding um, by Eric Foner and you just start to truly understand something and let me tell you, the key thing that I grasped from this, there's a couple key things, if you don't mind me. Come on, teach us. One, it has been the Supreme Court every time that mm. has prevented this country from moving towards the democracy it claims within its constitution to be in pursuance of. So when I say that is that the Constitution was written at the time for landowning white men, but it was written in a way that had like it had like looser language that like was breathing like room. breathing room. So then when after the Civil War, when they were like, OK, here's the 13th, 14th, the 15th Amendments, you know, here you all get to be citizens. Here you all get to vote. And now here you all, you know, you you, you get to just live in America. There was language. The language was very loose in those two. And the Supreme Court, the Congress, there were people in Congress who were like, this language is too loose. Like, if we're really going to move towards equity, we need to, like, protect black people very deliberately in this language. And the Supreme Court was like, nah, we're not going to do that. Y'all can't do that. (laughs) And the Supreme Court was like, you as Congress, you don't have the power to protect black people. (sighs) But they gave that same Congress the power to support slave owners with the Dred Scott case. And say that slave owners could come to free states and take people and bring them back if they think that they're slaves who are escaped. So when we look at what's going on with our Supreme Court now, we have to understand that this is not necessarily just an American problem. This is a actual like hierarchical problem where we have what's taught as checks and balances, except for them. 
except for them. And they have been the problem every time. And we have been tricked into thinking that it's been the president that's the problem or it's been the Congress that's the problem. And I'm not saying they haven't been problematic, but they have only been able to get away with it by nature of the Supreme Court saying, go ahead. Actually, you know what? Let's just give it to the states. Let's just give it to the states. Let's just give it to the states. So that was one. Two, I didn't think that... I, I, I just feel like I thought that there was like the Civil War and then we just went straight into Jim Crow. And that's simply just not the case. Like, not the, have, Literally not the case at all. It's not the case. Like, this, again, those, those 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment allowed for rights, but, the, but what it did do... It forced black people, though, and this happened again with the Civil Rights and the Voting Rights Act and the Housing Rights Act. It forced black people to hold America accountable. So like they had these laws in place, but because they didn't create something that said that we as America have to hold these laws in place, it said that if you want to challenge this, if someone does some sideways shit, you're the one who's going to have to bring it to the Supreme Court, which honestly, it's like, okay, so y'all y'all wouldn't let us read and now we got to be lawyers. Like, how'd that work? Um but but what the real what the reason why this is so really important though is because they took our rights back and enough people not enough people understand how easily that was done and how quickly like there was 20 years of like okay like we out here and black people do- were on the up on, on the, the up. up. They're a part of government. We're seeing the Roaring Twenties. Like, you know, like, okay, okay, we're moving, we're moving. And then they were like, ah, y'all getting too hype. Let's let's tone it down. And that's when we see the Fugitive Slave Laws. I mean, sorry, that's when we see, you know, Green Book Jim pop Crow. up because you have Jim Crow, which is really simply just apartheid. And we keep calling it Jim Crow, but it really is apartheid. And so, like, those two things were very just illuminating for me um, because I feel like those are huge themes that we've seen consistently and that are like rearing their ugly heads. And if we learn from history, then we can prevent it. But if we don't know it, we can't. Yep. It's interesting. One of the things that stuck with me about Reconstruction was the amount of Black wealth. And as you just said, people had it and it was taken away. Like money did not protect Black people. The rich Black people got screwed like everybody else. They got lynched too. And I look at this... Yes. And I'm looking at this moment like there are black people who really think that their little millions is protection. And I'm like, we actually have I didn't know this before, but I'm like, we did this. We we've been here before. We were mayors. We ran cities. We ran towns. Yes. Yes. Snatched away. Snatched and snatched because the white people became more and more belligerent in their feeling that we didn't deserve it. There. Are you looking around? Because that's what I'm seeing. Absolutely. Been here before. So it's very, it's when you start studying, it's like tragic and empowering at the same time. Because I do feel a certain level of empowerment and like, okay, I feel like I'm seeing play. It's, it's, you know what it feels like? It feels like I'm like on a field, not that kind of field. And I'm learning <laughs> like the playbook. And so now like I have like a lot more ways in which to defeat this opponent because now I have more plays in my coffer like to pull from. But nonetheless, you know, we're we're constantly working just against ignorance. Like that's what we're really, really up against. I mean, even like you said, like just the fact that so many people feel like, well, if I have money, we're good. They don't want you. You have never been wanted here. You have never been wanted here. They have only wanted you for, 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 they have only wanted you for labor. 
You know what? I, you don't need any more work to do. You have a full plate and you are successful <laughs> and amazing. Damn it. But let me tell to? you that what if you, you wanted to, I think you would be a phenomenal and Camping Zero would do this with you. Like not book clubs, but like reading clubs, reading groups. Like, I think there are some essays out there that people just need, you know, like right now, if you were trying to read an essay, where would you go? Like, who would you, you need people to talk about it with, right? And I think a lot yeah. of people don't have a, they don't have a home a group. to do that. Do you know what no. I mean? And I think that you are a clear storyteller who who people trust, who could bring in a set of people who otherwise wouldn't feel like they can protect. It's one of the issues we have on, you know, we do all this technical work on the police and people just don't feel like they can talk about police unions. They're like, I don't know about unions. I don't know about labor. So we have to create entrances for them. And I think you're just a really good entrance maker. So that is my, that is my, not even push, wanna, just a I, little plug. That's just a side, but I, I actually want to connect you to somebody who is trying to do this already. And somebody, and they are the most reputable, actually. Um, and I just don't want to put them out there right now, but okay. they're trying to do this. And I would love to be in partnership with them in doing this. Um, but the reality is you're, you're so right. Like there are a lot of people who do want to know and like be, be, we need like salons. You know what I mean? Like remember yes. they used to have salons and we, they would have these yeah. salons so that we could like talk about things and like, you know, ideate and, and, um, and, and philosophize, you know, cause that's the other thing too. It's like, because of this internet and its immediacy, people expect everybody to show up with thoughts fully formed and, you know, just no level of real like exploration. So I try, you know, to let people know, like, you might hear some thoughts from me that are in process. Um, you know, and and I think it's important to do that. And we don't have safe spaces to do that. Right. Like like this week is actually a great example of people who started the week one way. Absolutely. And you need good facilitators, too, who can like hold the space and push and acknowledge and say, yeah. OK, man, I see what you're doing. Let me connect that. You know, like so I think that's I think that is real. I, I want to know, too, talking about this week, you know, um, it, there are moments where people, the public conversation is very intense. There's some things where the public conversation is uh, full, but not intense. This is one where, like, there seems to be a real line around the Israel-Palestine. I did a nigga like, over this. Okay. Really? Yes. So how do, what, how do you wade through these moments where people feel very, very strongly on both sides? How has that been for you? You can feel strongly, but you got to know what you know. And so that's what I've been telling. Because, you know, people be calling me, DeRay. You know, they be calling me. (laughs) Amanda. Uh, I mean, I know you're funny and you're a comedian, but. (laughs) Baby, they be calling me, girl. What is all of this? You know, because I I thought, et cetera. And now I'm understanding X, Y, Z. And I'm like, I know, I know. They're like, can you send me some videos? I'm like, let me send you some links. And I love seeing people have a voraciousness for information um, at the very least so that they don't uh, get canceled for no reason. Um, But 
But I think there, you know, listen, there is a lot of feelings, but one thing that you get afforded if it's not necessarily like directly related to you is the opportunity to have objectivism. Okay. And objectivity at the end of the day is going to be informed by facts. I mean, that's just where it lives. That's the whole point of it. So once you start studying facts, you know, there's really just a very clear understanding that's here because it's not new. <laughs> this is not new. It's it's it looked different, but it's still the same formula. You know, it's like in in the Wu Tang on the on the uh, it's like on the purple tape when Ghostface is like, I got a whole new way to do clocks. I got a whole new way. So what we gonna do is we gonna do this side blue, but ooh, but wait for it, wait for it. On this side, we gonna do cream. So it's gonna be like blue and cream, which is. Oddly fascinating how that actually lines up with this because <laughs> that was not even intentional, uh, but, uh, but it's still, but it's still Clark's. You understand what I'm saying? Like, it's still the thing. It looks different, but it's still the thing. And that's what we're looking at right now. Like, it, 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 it's still colonialism. It just looks different. And, and we know that that's the way things go in the world, right? Like, things evolve, things, things evolve, but they're still attached to like, a certain level of principles and behaviors that identify them as such. And when you've, when you've, when you've studied enough or you've lived enough and you've seen it enough, it doesn't take much to be able to identify it in something else. And so that's really where I've been trying to encourage people to go is just go to the facts. Have you, before I ask you this question about Israel Palestine, are you a Wu-Tang scholar? I mean, I like to think so. Because you asked Bowman that question. You asked, Bo- you asked Bowman. Uh, um, oh, I did ask um, him about the woo. You know, because the woo is a very grounding, like, starting point for someone's true hip-hopness. I tried to date somebody okay. who told me they were a hip-hop head, and then I asked them. I, like, asked them. Like, no, they, they said they were a hip-hop head, and then they and then they said, but I don't really know about, like, Wu-Tang or anything. And I was just like, get out of my house. Like, what are we we even talking about so like i was like that was your when he answered it right i was like thank you bowman because this would be an (laughs) awkward start to the interview you know what though let me tell you that interview those interviews really showed me that i've like really grown as an interviewer and i've been doing my small doses podcast now for like five years since 2018 and i was really proud of myself because i really love that you said like you didn't know that about jamal bowman you didn't know about his his um his his journey to being um a representative and i feel like that was able to come out because a safe space was created right and like that's hard as an interviewer like sometimes because especially like people like that like they're always being interviewed you know what i'm saying so they're kind of always coming with like i'm here to do this i'm gonna say these things i'm gonna do these things and i was like yeah we're not gonna do that and I don't want to give away, y'all need to watch the documentary, but the moment where you ask him what was the moment and you don't let him off. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, I can see, I can see you in this place with your wife and them kids. So the reason like, why I like to ask folks that, because I asked Marianne Williamson that and she refused to answer it, like flat out. Interesting. She refused to answer it and she was offended by the question. Wait, I didn't, I didn't miss that in the documentary, did I? No, that's on my podcast. Okay, I was like, I did watch. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> She refused to answer it. She wouldn't answer it. I asked her three different times in three different ways. She wouldn't answer it because she was like, I didn't just come up with this just on a random day. And it's like, well, everyone does though. It arrives, right. like it arrives, right? Like I, and the example I gave her was that Corey Bush told me that like, you know, three different times people had approached her about running and she was like, nah. And then the last time she was like, well, let's talk. 
right? Yeah, and like so, you, you make a you you make a decision. That is a <laughs> that is a, that is a fact, Marianne Williamson. But there's a humanity in that, right? Mm-hmm. And there's there's a hum, there's a groundedness in like where that decision came from and why that decision happened. And we are at a very critical time where people are starting to really realize like, well, we need to elect people, but there's like this morality that people want. And like, how do we reconcile the two? Because the space itself is immoral. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, it's, it's a question that I feel like in a very quick way helps to illuminate someone's like just humanity as, as it, as it relates to their public servitude. Because he wasn't, you know, he was literally watching his kids playing in the water. Like, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't you like... You gave it away, not me. Okay, I was trying not to say it. You're right, my bad. Watch the documentary, but, but, y'all. But, but, yeah, but, like, the way it unfolds is beautiful. So, go to any man that we trust. I'm assuming people disagree with your position about Israel and Palestine in this moment. And how has how have you managed that disagreement? Oh, I'm just resolute. I'm just like, what are you disagreeing with? Because <laughs> if you're trying to tell me I'm anti-Semitic, that is completely wholeheartedly and 100% untrue. And I will simply just not accept false assertions. Um, it Anti-Semitism would mean that I do not believe in the rights of Jewish people to exist in this world. Uh, it would believe that I don't see their humanity. It would believe that I don't see their uh, access to joy as something deserving. And none of those true. I can believe that Palestinians deserve all those things and that Jewish people deserve all those things. And at the same time, identify the Israeli government impeding upon Palestinians doing those things as a problem. I can do all of those things at the same time and I can chew gum. And then there's also just like the the, the reality that a lot of people are not connected to their humanity anymore. Hmm. And you're not going to try and convince me to disconnect from mine. Um, you're not also going to convince me to disconnect from just history and facts. And I, I already know the world that we're in. We are in a white supremacist world. That is the world we're in. We are in a white supremacist colonial capitalist world. So that's the context that we're in. And you cannot just dis, you can't just like, take something like obfuscate, obfuscate that. Like the fact is what it, it is, what it is. And so you have to look at everything within that lens. And when you said earlier, like everything is about race. It is. It is. <laughs> it is. It this is, is where it. we are, you know, like, I mean, we're, we're, <sighs> so that's, so that's my response. I mean, I, um, I will tell you that I have been very, 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 very fortunate that I haven't had any of my like professional, um, I haven't had any of my professional spaces marred or questioned in my defense of, of what's going on. I, I also believe I've, I've built a life where I am expected to speak in, in these truths. Um, Mm. And I stand on that and I feel very guided by a higher power to do that and very protected. Uh, I also feel protected by the people, you know, Ossie Davis said, never stick your neck out deeper than your feet are rooted in the people. He told me that to my face at purchase. Come on. Come on, come on. Let them know. Like, Let them, I didn't read that. I didn't read that. I heard it. I heard it. Okay. I, I was told it. You got to come eye. see Pearly, Pearly Victorious on Broadway, by the way, his play. Oh, do you mean 
Pearly that I starred in at Dr. Phillips High School in 1999 that was a Let legendary production. My where name I played is the Amanda of- Seals, everybody. Missy Judson walking up. Like, is that what we're talking about? Are we ah! talking about are we talking about the pearly victorious that we actually had to bring back at the end of the year because it was so successful in the beginning of the school year that we had to Let bring it know. back? And it is a literal like legacy production. Are we talking about pearly victorious that starred Michael James Scott, who is currently playing the role of the genie in Aladdin on Broadway? Are we talking about know. that pearly? Maybe we're, maybe we're talking about the pearly that we then <laughs> took to the state competition and blew everyone away. Or I think, I actually think you're talking about the pearly that I will be attending and that at the end of the show will be sitting on a panel with Kimberly Crenshaw, who invited me there to have a talk back with Leslie Odom Jr. I think that's, is that I think that might be, I think it might be that one. See, look at God. Look at God. Look at God. I love it. It's very serious. It is a small, good black world. It is. Um, There are two questions we ask everybody. The first is, what do you say to people, Amanda, who whose hope is challenged in these moments, who are like, I came to your live show, I listened to your podcast, I watched the videos, I shared the videos, I read the book, I went to the talk, and still I'm like, mm, the world ain't changed what I want to do. What, what do you say to those people? Um, I've been working on that. I've been working on what to say because... This is a time where I feel like many people are expecting to see the change that they wish to be. Um, But you really just have to be the change that you hope the future sees. And that has to be enough. And the only way for that to be enough is for you to tap into your spirit and soul. And because it requires selflessness. And we have been trained to be selfish which is why this world is descending into madness, which is why our climate is, you know, changing because of our pressure, um, because of our greed, right? Um, We lost, we have lost sight of the idea, of the reality that we're all connected. And I like to think that the ancient people even if they didn't know that there were other people, they knew that they themselves were connected. And so they had to operate a certain way. And of course, like we study these, we study these ancient civilizations and we find things that are abhorrent, et cetera, because humans themselves are just really ridiculous beings. But I think we're at a time where the world is drastically trying to shift and it's going to require it's just going to require us to say, I want to feel good that my spirit that's going to live after me feels good about what I did here. And that really is all I can, I can offer people. The, we are not going to see the change to the extent that we want to see it. I do not believe that. I'm not going to mislead people. You know, when I tell people about voting, I'm like, you're not voting for a person. You're voting for a path. That's what we're voting for. That's the next T-shirt, y'all. That's the next T-shirt. I now work for Amanda Seals, everybody. I am <laughs> the unpaid consultant. That is because, the next T-shirt. listen, like, people want to vote for Jesus, and he's not running for office. Right. You know, like, this has never been a moral high ground, so it's weird to apply. It's not weird. I understand why people are applying morality, because they're like, well, I want someone who's going to honor the things that they said they were running on 
And in order for me to feel confident about, you know, trusting that they're going to do that, I have to trust that they're a moral person. I get that math. Uh, the, the, the problem though, is that there would have to be an entire deconstructing of our political system for us to, you know, be able to fully trust that. So I guess my, what I really want to just come back to is that we got to lean into love. That sounds corny, but that's really, you got to lean into love and, and, and that, that is really the best thing that you can do for you and for the future. And if you want to be selfish, then I can also inform you that you probably gonna have to come back to this bitch. So the best thing you can do is set it up for a return. <laughs> um, and then the last question is what's a piece of, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Well, that Aussie quote is definitely one. This is going to be really, 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 really corny, but be corny yourself. Is, corny is honest. Okay. Be yourself. And it is so difficult for so many of us to be ourselves. First of all, a lot of us don't even know who we are. So be yourself is really actually a very deep statement. Um, I heard something else recently that I thought was really just like obvious, but impactful. And it was the love of your life is the love of your life. The love of your life is the love of your life. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Come on. Preach, preach, preach. <laughs> and, you know, I recently got out of a long relationship and I think that one of the main things that caused our relationship to eventually dissolve was that I really love my life and I really love myself. And it, that wasn't always the case, but I've, I have I did the work to get there and I will not abandon myself. And he, he doesn't, he wasn't there. And so it be, it's like, we can't exist. We can't coexist in that space. Right. right? Um, but that, that phrase, the love of your life is the love of your life was so impactful to me because it really said to me, like, it really, it's about you loving your life. And so many of us feel like we're spending our whole life looking for someone to love us. Yes. You well, can love you. On that note, preach, preacher, preach. Everybody, <laughs> this is the one and only Amanda Seals. Please go watch In Amanda We Trust. Go to inamandawetrust.com um, and get it. And we consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Thank you. And I'm not sure when this is going to air, but I'll be doing a screening of In Amanda We Trust in Los Angeles on November 19th at the Hollywood Improv. And uh, when I do the screenings, we give away free stuff. We do political trivia. I do a and a It's always a really good uh, intellectual black-ass time. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Positive the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out and make sure you rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Positive the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Evan Sutton. Executive produced by me and special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles E. Johnson.
Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Mom, I got the job in Manhattan. Do you have a warm enough winter coat? What about your car? I'm selling it with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. How? I enter my license plate number, miles, condition, upload photos, and boom, an official cash offer from a local dealership. A cash offer instantly? Oh, did you call Aunt Stella? She's right there in Massachusetts. Mom, I literally just got the job. Not everything is as simple as selling your car with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it, kbb.com it.